You know, they say, no news is good news. That's how the saying goes. Paul maybe wished that that were the case for the church that he had planted, but the news that he did receive informed him that that wasn't such good stuff going on there in in Corinth. There There were fractions and quarreling. What do you think Paul would have said? Just think, transport yourself back in your mind 2,000 years ago. What do you think Paul would say if he were transported back then and had a glimpse of, well, I'm sorry, what would Paul say if he were transported till today after having seen what happened in Corinth? What if he were transported till today and saw our state, our country, our world Red state, blue state, left, right, global versus nationalist, conservative versus liberal. Wouldn't it be great, wouldn't it be great if we could make everyone who disagrees with us just move away? (laughs) Actually, that's not the answer. So yeah, I know that you said that tongue-in-cheek, Ricky. (laughs) Yeah, that's not the solution. Maybe unity is just too hard for a country. Maybe the real place to grow relational harmony is in the workplace. You know, the workplace where you can use mission and values of a company to build a culture. And then you could also use paychecks as leverage to move it along. The only problem with that is that the greatest complaint of the workplace is people. (laughs) You maybe know that. Broken relationships. Often... Office politics, silos, turf wars, favoritism, incompetent workers, and bad bosses. So maybe not the workplace. Maybe the only truly stress-free, genuinely peace-filled community you can expect is in your home. You're laughing, yeah, because we just came off of holidays where you saw family and in-laws and you wish there were that great harmony, but it doesn't seem to happen all that well there either. Where can you find a place where everybody gets along, where there's no factions, no complaints, no grumbling, no small-mindedness, no petty goals, no egos battling? Thank God for the church. No, I have to say no church that I've ever been has been that way. That's because I'm a part of it and I bring all those problems with me. So this topic we're going to talk about today is huge. Huge for everybody, every family, every church, every country, our nation and our world. We're just starting a series, as you know, from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. We introduced it last week, and now we come to the real meat of why Paul writes this letter. And he says to the church in Corinth, verse number 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Hmm. Isn't it fascinating that 
of all the problems that were facing the church, and you look into the book written to 1 Corinthians, to the church in Corinth, sexual immorality, lawsuits, bedlam in Sabbath worship, denial of basic Christian teachings, all these things and more. But the number one on Paul's list, the first thing he chooses to address in his letter to the church in Corinth is the problem of disunity. Today we'll be looking at a small section, 1 Corinthians 1 verses 10 to 17 and a few verses from chapter number 3. But here Paul tells us first about the problem that we are to avoid and secondly he gives us a mindset that abolishes it. So that's what we'll look at today, the, the problem to be avoided and then the mindset, the attitude that abolishes that problem. <clears throat> it's true, isn't it? We inhabit a divisive age. Our country, our world, our church is riven by deep divisions. Our country has a motto, e pluribus unum, from many, one. But we've been at it as a country for 250 years. And we're just as fragmented as we've ever been. Class, race, education, ethnicity, culture, gender, economics, religion, pol politics. They divide us and it only seems to be getting worse, not better. And not only out there, but it seems to be getting worse in here. Paul addresses the matter, verse number 11, chapter 1. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Interesting, isn't it? Imagine, <clears throat> imagine you were in Corinth when this letter is read. You know Paul, you know all about him. He's founded the church. He started this church in Corinth. The church is young, matter of just, a few years old, but it's already splitting into factions. We also know that the church in Corinth has written a note to Paul. So it's interesting that, fall, that Paul finds out about the, these factions, but it's not from the letter that they had written. You, we'll, we'll look at that a little bit later, but just a, a snippet here. Um, it says in uh, 1 Corinthians 1.11, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. So evidently, uh, Chloe has informed Paul, and uh, this doesn't come from the letter that they get from Paul, uh, that they write to Paul, but it's from Chloe. And... Uh, What's interesting is in the letter that they write, and we'll look into some of those problems starting in chapter number six and seven, but they want to know from their letter what to do with marriage and how to deal with some of the intimate personal stuff that always seemed to be popular in the church. But somehow in the letter they write to Paul, they don't include this problem of relationships. But some of the people from Chloe's household 
have informed Paul. Now, who is this Chloe? We don't know that much about her, but we do know that she's a woman. We do know that she's the head of her household, which is rather strange given the situation in ancient times. And we also know that she's crazy rich and also sold out for Jesus Christ. And she's put her property, her household, her wealth, everything at the disposal of the church. Now, most people in Paul's day were illiterate, so when Paul wrote his letter to the church in Corinth, it wouldn't be read by every member. It would have been read in a place like this. Well, it was actually in a home. They didn't have churches that they met in. They, if they didn't meet in a synagogue, they were in a whole home, and they would have read this letter out loud since it probably couldn't be read by many who were gathering there. So it was probably a Sabbath morning. They had prayer, they had songs, and then they had a reading. And just imagine it, you're there, and you hear the reading. It starts out, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Now this word that Paul puts in his letter, quarrels, wasn't just a, a word that referred to minor squabbles. It's a word that's used to describe battle warfare battle strife there was bitter contention raging in the church in Corinth imagine this situation just in your mind as the letter is being read everybody is there and as this letter is read people who are not from Chloe's household look at those who are from Chloe's household can you imagine the dynamic that time they're all together and they think these ones that aren't from Chloe's household they say how can you say that how could you write that tell Paul that now we're going to be criticized in the Bible and people were going to be saying bad things about us for the next 2,000 years because you guys tattletailed on the, to the Apostle Paul not quite but I'm sure they were upset. But I have to say, thank God that somebody, somebody from Chloe's house said, hey, Paul, we're having trouble here. We're having trouble here. Otherwise, this book that's been such a treasure to the church and to all of us for so many years wouldn't even have existed. Maybe from... Maybe it's a case that someone from Chloe's household should have gone to the people who were personally involved and asked them about these things. Maybe should have, they should have dealt with it. Maybe, but maybe it's a case that they tried. Maybe they approached them and they were unsuccessful. But one thing is for sure. Relational problems were rampant and they didn't get cleared up and they never do unless someone is willing and has courage to step into the heat. Is that the way it is today, still? Someone's got to have the courage. We oftentimes complain about methods, but really, it's just doing it, stepping into it, being caring enough to, to say something. The issue in Corinth was rather interesting. There were people that had rallied around various ones, various leaders in the church. There were people that, that surrounded Paul. He was their beloved founder of the church, highly esteemed. And he's also, by the way, a Roman citizen. 
which may have played a bit of a role in this divide that occurred in the church. I mentioned last week that the, the church in Corinth, the city of Corinth, was an ancient city that had been destroyed by Rome 150 years or so before Christ and then rebuilt about 44 years before Christ as a Roman colony. And it was resettled, Corinth was resettled by slaves conquered from various territories in Greece. And also, in addition to that, many citizens, Roman citizens, joined them because they were establishing this strategic commercial city once again. It's sort of like a rush that we saw in the settling of America as United States developed a few hundred years ago. Three groups, it appears, likely dominated this early church, this Christian church in Corinth. There were Romans, there were Greeks, and there were Jews. They were the three dominant groups. And as national rulers, anybody who was a Roman citizen and a part of the church would have sort of felt like they were on top of the pecking order, if you know what I mean. Since this city in Greece... Uh, was also uh, Greek. The Greek-speaking people, the Greek uh, uh, folks who were, who were uh, Grecians would have come second, and then the foreigners, the Jews, people resettled, would have been on the bottom, and a few others. But Paul, he's one of them, and he's not only the founder of the church, he's also a Roman citizen, and so... A group gathered around Paul, evidently, when you read these verses. And this group that claimed Paul as their leader sort of said that they were like the standard bearers for the much-beloved leader. They were faithful and loyal to their leader and faithful and loyal to the good old days, the way that Paul would have done it, I'm sure they said. That's the way they wanted to do it. Have you ever heard anything like that today? Things were much better when Paul was here. And then there was another party. It was called the Apollos Party. By the way, Apollos was well known in the Bible. He was mentioned in Acts chapter 18. And from what we know, from what the scriptures say, he was a most eloquent, competent, and powerful man. He was a skilled orator, which was important in a city like Corinth. And he was, in addition to his skills in oratory, he was passionate and a dynamic expositor of the Bible. He could take verses and put them together and prove God's truths. And in addition to all that, he was Greek. So all the members of his party, well... They were all downloading Apollos' sermons on their smartphones and tweeting Apollos' quotes on their Twitter feeds because he was their guy. Now, Paul, on the other hand, the competitor, he wasn't quite as eloquent. That's what we get from the Bible. Interestingly, in his second letter to the church in Corinth, this is what Paul says. For some say... His letters, this is what Paul had heard, 
His letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he, Paul, is unimpressive and he's, his speaking amounts to nothing. So that's what people were saying. He quotes that in his second letter to the church. Maybe it's the case that Paul was a great writer, but he was an extremely boring speaker. It might have been. After all, the book of Acts does record a time when Paul was speaking for a Saturday evening Sabbath Vespers. You remember it there. The sundown Vespers, and he was speaking, and Eutychus was sitting in the windowsill, and he falls asleep. That's always a bad thing when you're speaking, to see that happen. <laughs> That's always an indicator of something. Always a depressing thing to have happen to you when you're speaking. But anyway, Eutychus fell asleep during Paul's sermon and falls to the ground three stories down. And he dies. Paul runs down there and, uh, and throws himself on this man and throws his arms around him. And Eutychus comes back to life. Paul's maybe a, a boring speaker, but he's got some other powers that make him pretty, <laughs> pretty uh, uh, on the edge. You know, I have to say, I've been a pastor for a long time, and every pastor I know wrestles with this. How do I compare? You know, how do I compare to others? I heard of a young pastor who was leaving his church and one of the longtime members came up to say goodbye and he, she was crying. She was in tears. And of course, the young pastor thought that he's so good that he's going to be missed so badly by this older lady. And so he says to her, this lady that's crying, and he says, don't be sad. I'm sure the next pastor will be even better and she says, that's what everyone's been saying, but they keep getting worse. <laughs> Apollos was the man in the church in Corinth. He was the man. He could preach like nobody else. And there were some who were all about Apollos. All about him. He was a grid through which they measured every other ministry. He was the, he was the one that, that was a guide for everything in Christian life. Paul actually mentions Apollos again in chapter number three and mentions how important their ministries were together. He said in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. You see, Paul says, we're not in competition. Unfortunately, we don't get that in the church. Too often, we don't see it that way. God blessed the ministry of both these men, Apollos and Paul, and brought growth to the church, not by their power, but through their efforts by God's power. But neither Apollos nor Paul were there to advance their careers or promote their program. But somehow, some way, there were people who were claiming, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. And they were using these people as the paradigm by which they judged everything else. The lens through which they would gauge what was appropriate, what wasn't appropriate, what would work, what wouldn't work, what was proper worship, 
what wasn't proper work, what was the right style, what was the right audience, what was the right stance. And then there was a third party. It was a party of Peter. He's not mentioned as Peter, he's mentioned as Cephas because that's his Jewish name. So we have a Greek, we have a Roman, and we have a Jew. Three different leaders. Now the Jewish people who were there in Corinth would naturally, don't you think, would have leaned toward their homelander, Peter. And it was a case that for some in Corinth, well, Paul was just a bit too aggressive. And Apollos, oh, he was a bit too cultured and, and too, you know, worldly. But Peter, ah, he's the guy. He was the one closest to what we're used to. And for them, Peter was the man. Peter was a man. Now, we don't know for sure whether these ethnic loyalties contributed to the serious tensions, but there were these three groups in the church in Corinth. But there was also a fourth group. Now, you see it there in those verses. This fourth one was the party who followed this refrain, we follow Christ. We follow Christ. Now, that's a good thing, isn't it? That's the right answer, isn't it? Sure it is, but you know what? Someone can give the right answer with the wrong heart and do more damage than they would if they were just plain wrong. And so, that answer, it seems to me, has always been a good fallback for Christians. We follow the Lord. I've always found it a bit difficult, I'll just say, a bit difficult to engage a person who claims God told me. I, it's difficult. That is sort of the ultimate way of pulling a rank on everybody else's idea or opinion. God told me. Unfortunately, the church in Corinth isn't the only one in history that had a small clique of people who considered themselves true believers. There's often at least, at least a few in the church. Sometimes it's a rather sizable group who consider themselves correctors, watchmen on the walls, fruit inspectors. And they're not too sure about you and they're surely not too sure about me. And, uh, but they're praying for us. They're praying for us. And they scan bookshelves. They parse sermons. They weigh every program. And then they depart, as they often do, to find pure ground. There are those people. <laughs> Maybe something of this dynamic was troubling the church in Corinth. Isn't it true? Getting along, relational harmony, that's a huge deal. A huge deal back then. It's a big deal today. This week, this, just this week alone, I received three messages that were specifically pertaining to this issue. Three messages. One was a personal email from someone who attends Village Church. Another one was a package from an old friend that I've known for almost 40 years. And 
The third one was a general email sent to me, but from a general, uh, meant for many, from upper administrative echelons of the church. And one item brought them together. Divisiveness. Divisiveness. One was concerned that they were being perceived as being divisive. Another one warned me that I was on the edge of that. And the third one was clarifying divisive, misleading information. That's the church. That's the church. Divisiveness in politics has derailed our government and brought it to a virtual halt because of divisiveness. Strife and bickering, contention and discord. Doesn't that seem to be at, at an all-time high? I mean, what are we? Day number 28 of the U.S. government shutdown? And why? Divisiveness. 800,000 workers have been furloughed or forced to work without pay. And the government services have, the, the halting of government services has affected millions of people. And it's all because of the contentious nature of politics and life. And for me, I don't know about for you, but it's hard for me to even imagine the end of this shutdown. I'm trying to see how it's going to happen. And it's hard to even imagine. And if we go from politics to the workplace, it's not much that, that much better, is it? Civility is at a low ebb. Jealousy and strife are hallmarks of the modern workplace. And how about our home? We've talked about that just a bit. The home is supposed to be a place where love and joy reigns. But is the home right and good without any relational problems? Don't we wish? Don't we wish? And of course, there's that last bastion of harmony, the church. Certainly, we hope and pray that the church experiences a conflict-free experience. But we're not there, are we? We're not there. We wish that for every committee, every ministry, every interaction, every encounter, every visit, every friendship. We hope they all come by us free. But we're far from that. We want our experience to be patience-filled, pride-expunged, self-effacing, hope-building, wrong-ignoring, love-delighting. We want it all to be that way. But then I came. <laughs> then I arrived. And I'm constantly battling the vestiges of my self-centeredness, my bias, my impatience, my hurtfulness, my vengeance-seeking, and my anger. I'm constantly working on that. And Paul not only identifies the depth of the problem, but he goes right to the heart of it. And he says to them, in chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, that there may be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Notice that word there, Paul appeals. He says, I appeal to you. 
That's the same word, by the way, that Luke uses when he talks about, when he records the parable of the prodigal son. You remember the story? When the father of the prodigal steps aside from the celebration where the younger son is, has returned and they're celebrating his return, but the older brother is outside the party, you remember that? And the father steps outside to appeal, same word, appeal to this brother who's defiantly standing in the courtyard of the family house. Appeal. It's a word that communicates a deep desire for reconciliation. Paul says, I appeal. I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty strong, isn't it? I mean, that's who it's all about. That's who they were, they were baptized in the name of. It. Jesus Christ, I appeal to you in his name. Paul is pulling out all the stops. He's asking them with all earnestness if they might just fit together. That's what the word means there, the language that he uses there. I appeal to you in, in the name. He, he says, fit together. You know, Paul, by trade, was a tent maker. And he knows what, he knew what it meant to fit pieces of cloth together. He, know, he knew what it mean, meant to put these pieces of canvas together so that they wouldn't tear or they wouldn't leak. Because if the canvas splits, the tent is worthless. So he appeals. And Paul challenges the church in Corinth to be perfectly united, there it is, united in mind and thought, united. That was used of fishermen mending torn nets, united, fixing those nets. It was used back in the day for a shoulder that was dislocated and snapped back into its socket, united. That's what he's saying. May the church be united. Paul was appealing to Corinth and to believers everywhere, believers at all time, not to be torn apart by schism, but mended together and knit together in love. That's what Paul's appealing. He's appealing that members of this church in Corinth and the church at large not be put out of joint, as it were, but that we be together, molded, and ready for action. That's what we need. He says again, verse number 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you. That word to agree means that to share the same truths, to be rooted in the same convictions. You know, Sometimes people worry that unity comes at the expense of doctrine. It doesn't. Sometimes people think that if you're unified, then, then uh, doctrine becomes minimalized. Not the case, not as Paul talks about it. Unity isn't found by dumbing down our beliefs. That's not how we find unity. Unity is found not by ignoring biblical truth so that we can get along. That's not how we find unity. Unity is 
not found by imposing a grid of conduct by some external structure. That's not unity. Paul is unequivocal. He's not drawing the congregation to him, to his camp. He's drawing the congregation in Corinth to Christ. And that's what we need. And he says, verses 13 and 14, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Imagine Paul saying those words. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? For Christ did not send me, he says, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see the focus here. Unity in the church doesn't happen because we're all ethnically the same. Unity in the church isn't a matter of being all of the same race. Unity doesn't happen because we're all the same gender or background. Unity doesn't happen because we're all the same culture or color or age. Unity isn't about education. Unity is not about degrees. Unity isn't about skills or abilities or hobbies or political conservatism or vice versa. Unity in the church is not a factor of religious fundamentalism or spiritual liberalism. Unity in the church is not about worship style, worship music, instrumental preference, or stained glass windows. It's not about walking softly in the sanctuary or lifting up your hands to God. Unity is not about those things. Unity in the church is about Jesus Christ and Him crucified, risen, ascended, reigning, ministering for us, and returning soon. That's what unity is about. Unity is found in our unswerving devotion to God and to His Word and to our calling as His followers. Unity is found in the truths that he gives us because he says the truth will set you free. Is Christ divided? Paul asks them. Is Christ divided? Of course not. Christ is the centerpiece. Paul says he was crucified for you. Paul says I wasn't crucified for you. Imagine him saying that. I wasn't crucified for you. Apollos wasn't. Peter wasn't. John wasn't. Jim wasn't, Roger wasn't, or any other name you put on there, they weren't crucified for you. Jesus was. Jesus is the one who died for you. Jesus is the one you surrendered your life to when you, when you gave yourself to him as his follower. Jesus is the one that you accepted as Lord and Savior. and Christ is the one that you were baptized in his name. And since Christ is one, we who follow him must be one. Can we say, can we say here at Village Church that we will not have disunity over trivial things? Can we say that? Can we say here at Village Church that we won't have disunity over different preachers, different music, different instruments, 
different clothing styles. Can we say here at Village Church that we won't have disunity over a person's pet ideas? Over a program? Over formal versus informal? Over planned versus spontaneous? Over old versus young? Can we say that we'll have unity at Village Church and and whether you're in the hip category or the hip replacement category. <laughs> we will find our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his truth, in his word, in the conviction of his soon return, in the authority of his word, and in his mission to us to take the good news to everyone everywhere. May the good news about Jesus Christ, what he's done for you, what he's done for me, may that so fill our hearts, so fill our minds, so fill our egos that our egos die, huh? Die. And divisions crumble. When we look to Jesus, who took the condemnation that I deserve, pouring out the love on me that I did not deserve, all of a sudden my perspective is reset. Reset. We are under one gospel, one good news, one mission, one Christ. May we be that village church, right? By God's strength and power. This year and every year until Jesus Christ returns. That's my hope and prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this message that Paul gives us that's so relevant for today. We find ourselves in such a divisive place in the world, in our nation, even in our own church. So many challenges, but, but you offer us hope. You have a solution for us by o- obedience to your word, by being a born again in, your, in our Savior your son, Jesus Christ, by putting our feet in the steps that he put his, by living our life in obedience to his commands. That is where our unity will be and finds itself. So to that end, Lord, we give ourselves. Help us, Lord. We know you will. We know that we are your church. You are the head of this church. And you will see us through to that great and glorious day. Until that, Lord, until that day, Lord, we want to be earnest for you, for your kingdom, telling others about your goodness and grace. We give ourselves to this in Jesus' name. Amen.